Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes or changed votes or was in any way compromised. Yeah, I stand by that. The president tweeted after that statement, quote, the recent statement by Chris Krebs on the security of the 2020 election was highly inaccurate. Do you remember what the president said at the end of that tweet? Oh, I was terminated? Yes, I, I, I recall that. We have to do something to make sure that the legacy of those people in that cargo hold never, ever is forgotten. For 160 years, this muddy stretch of the Mobile River has covered up a crime. In July 1860, the Clotilda was towed here under cover of darkness. Imprisoned in its cramped cargo hold, 110 enslaved Africans. That's it right there? Yes. Oh, you can see it totally clearly. I mean, that's the ship. Yes. James Corden put the Late Late Show on the map made it a must-see stop on YouTube when the comedian slash song and dance man decided to turn carpooling into this. This is like a cultural phenomenon. You're making me feel incredibly British by uh, not being able to even look you in the eye uh, during a compliment or any kind of recognition of success. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. 
Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Though the transition has begun, President Trump remains largely holed up in the White House, tweeting false accusations of a rigged election from behind a crumbling wall of lawsuits. No legal challenge, no recount, no audit has changed the outcome in any state. Mr. Trump's claim that millions of votes were deleted or switched is denied by the official he chose to secure the nation's election systems. Christopher Krebs called the 2020 vote the most secure in American history, which promptly got him fired. Tonight, in his first interview since he was dismissed, Krebs tells us why he believes the vote was accurate and why saying otherwise puts the country in danger. I have confidence in the security of this election because I know the work that we've done for four years in support of our state and local partners. I know the work that the intelligence community has done the Department of Defense has done, that the FBI has done, that my team has done. I know that these systems are more secure. I know, based on what we have seen, that any attacks on the election were not successful. Two years ago, President Trump put Christopher Krebs in charge of the new Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Krebs, a lifelong Republican, was confirmed unanimously by the Senate. His agency, known by its acronym CISA, helps secure computer systems anywhere that a security breach could be catastrophic, nuclear power plants, for example, and the election hardware in all 50 states. Why are you speaking to us? I'm not a public servant anymore, but I feel I still got some public service left in me, and You know, it's hard once you take that oath to uphold and defend the Constitution from threats, foreign and domestic. It's hard to walk away from that. And if I can reinforce or confirm for one person that the vote was secure, the election was secure, then I feel like I've done my job. Krebs, who's 43, worked on cybersecurity in the Bush administration, became director of cybersecurity policy at Microsoft, and joined the Trump Department of Homeland Security in 2017. His priority was to stop anyone from repeating Russia's 2016 election hacking and disinformation. So we spent something on the order of three and a half years of gaming out every possible scenario for how a foreign actor could interfere 
with an election. Countless, countless scenarios. So back in 2017, as you're looking ahead to the election in 2018 and then ultimately the election in 2020, you have a to-do list. And the to-do list includes what? Paper ballots. Paper ballots give you the ability to audit, to go back and check the tape and make sure that you got the count right. And that's really one of the keys to success for a secure 2020 election. 95% of the ballots cast in the 2020 election had a paper record associated with it. Compared to 2016, about 82%. And with a paper record, you can go back and verify what the machine is saying by physically counting the paper. That gives you the ability to prove that there was no malicious algorithm or hacked software that adjusted the tally of the vote. And just look at what happened in Georgia. Georgia has machines that tabulate the vote. They then held a hand recount, and the outcome was consistent with the machine vote. And that tells you what? That tells you that there was no manipulation of the vote on the machine count side. And so that pretty thoroughly, in my opinion, debunks some of these sensational claims out there that I've called nonsense and a hoax, that there is some hacking of these election uh, vendors and their software and their systems across the country. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. Before the election, as the president called mail-in ballots a fraud, Krebs' team released a report highlighting the safeguards built into mail-in voting. His agency knocked down rumors and exposed an Iranian plot to intimidate voters. On election day, Krebs assembled a team in his command center to defend the vote. We had the Department of Defense Cyber Command. We had the National Security Agency. We had the FBI. We had the Secret Service. We also had representatives from the Election Assistance Commission, which is the the federal independent agency that supports the actual administration of elections. We had representatives from some of the vendors, the election equipment vendors, and they're critical because they're the ones out there that know what's going on on the ground if there's any sort of issue with some of their systems. And we had um, representatives from state and local uh, governments. How did the day go? It was quiet, and there was no indication or evidence that there was any sort of hacking or compromise of election uh, systems on, before, or after November 3rd. And yet, this was the president November 5th. And this is a case where they're trying to steal an election. They're trying to rig an election. Nine days after Election Day, Mr. Trump tweeted falsely that machines from Dominion voting systems deleted millions of votes. Krebs couldn't remain silent. His agency and its election security partners answered with a public statement. To quote from the November 12th statement that CISA and its partners put out, the November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes or changed votes or was in any way compromised. Yeah, I stand by that. The president tweeted after that statement, quote, the recent statement by Chris Krebs on the security of the 2020 election was highly inaccurate in that there were massive improprieties and fraud. 
Do you remember what the president said at the end of that tweet? Oh, I was terminated? Is that? Yes, I, I, I recall that. Were you surprised? I don't know if I was necessarily surprised. It's not how I wanted to go out. I think I, uh, the thing that upsets me the most about that is I didn't get a chance uh, to say goodbye to my team. And I'd worked with them for three and a half years in the trenches, building an agency, putting CISA on the national stage. And uh, I love that team. And I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So that's what I'm most upset about. Since he was fired, about a dozen Republican senators have vouched for Krebs' work. The president's essentially saying in that tweet that you did a lousy job, that you and your team blew it and allowed massive fraud all across the country. We did a good job. We did it right. I'd do it a thousand times over. Still, the president's lawyers have filed at least a dozen suits and spun conjecture without evidence. And you should be more astounded by the fact that our votes are counted in Germany and in Spain. As you watched Rudy Giuliani's news conference at the Republican National Committee headquarters, what were you thinking? It was upsetting because what I saw was a apparent attempt to undermine confidence in the election, to confuse people, to scare people. It's not me. It's not just CISA. It's the tens of thousands of election workers out there that had been working nonstop, 18-hour days for months. They're getting death threats for trying to carry out one of our core democratic institutions, an election. And that was, again, to me, a press conference that I just, it didn't make sense. What it was actively doing was undermining democracy. That's dangerous. Let me ask for your reaction to some of the vote fraud that the president and his team have been alleging. Votes tabulated in foreign countries. So all, all votes in the United States of America are counted in the United States of America. I don't, I don't understand this claim. All votes in the United States of America are counted in the United States of America, period. Voting machines corrupted by mysterious actors in Venezuela. So, again, there's no evidence that any machine that I'm aware of has been manipulated by a foreign power, period. Communist money from China and Cuba used to influence the election. Look, I, I think these we can go on and on with all the farcical claims that uh, alleging uh, interference in the 2020 election. But the proof is in the ballots. The recounts are consistent with the initial count. And to me, that's further evidence, that's confirmation that the systems used in the 2020 election performed as expected, and the American people should have 100% confidence in their vote. In a news conference, uh, a lawyer who was representing the president at the time, Sidney Powell, said specifically that the Dominion Company's voting machines, quote, It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden. Votes were cast in Georgia, for instance, again, on paper. They were counted by a machine. 
They were subsequently recounted by hand. The outcomes of that count were consistent. If there was an algorithm that was flipping votes or changing votes, it didn't work. I think the more likely explanation, though, is that there is no algorithm, that the systems performed as intended, that the series of security controls before, during, and after an election protected those systems from any sort of misbehavior. Most elections are run by each state's secretary of state, but not one of them, Democrat or Republican, has reported ballot rigging that would change the election. Some are paying a price for integrity. And it's, in my view, a travesty what's happening right now with all these death threats to election officials, to secretaries of state. I want, I want everybody to look at Secretary Bokvar in Pennsylvania, Secretary Benson in Michigan, Secretary Sagaski in Nevada, Secretary Hobbs in Arizona. All strong women that are standing up, that are under attack from all sides, and they're defending democracy. They're doing their jobs. Look at, look at Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia, lifelong Republican. He put country before party in his holding a free and fair election in that state. There's some real heroes out there. There's some real patriots. At the Capitol, the stage is going up for Inauguration Day, January 20th. Well before that, on December 14th, the presidential electors will cast their ballots, which should settle the election. Christopher Krebs told us it's ironic that the disruption and disinformation he feared from abroad came instead from Pennsylvania Avenue. The president says you're dead wrong about election security, and to him you say what? There is no foreign power that is flipping votes. There's no domestic actor flipping votes. I did it right. We did it right. This was a secure election. Two years ago, a sunken ship was found in the bottom of an Alabama river. It turned out to be the long-lost wreck of the Clotilda, the last slave ship known to have brought captured Africans to America in 1860. At least 12 million Africans were shipped to the Americas in the more than 350 years of the transatlantic slave trade. But as you'll hear tonight, the journey of the 110 captive men, women, and children brought to Alabama on the Clotilda is one of the best documented slave voyages in history. The names of those enslaved Africans and their story has been passed down through the generations by their descendants, some of whom still live just a few miles from where the ship was found in a community called Africatown. For 160 years, this muddy stretch of the Mobile River has covered up a crime. In July 1860, the Clotilda was towed here under cover of darkness, imprisoned in its cramped cargo hold, 110 enslaved Africans. I just imagine myself being on that ship, just listening to the waves and the waters and just not knowing where you were going. Joycelyn Davis, Lorna Gale Woods, and Thomas Griffin are direct descendants of this African man, Oluwale. Enslaved in Alabama, his owner changed his name to Charlie Lewis. This image is from around 1900. Poli Allen, whose African name was Capoli, seen in this 100-year-old sketch, was the ancestor of Jeremy Ellis and Darren Patterson. No clothes, eating where they defecated 
only allowed out of the cargo hold for one day a week for two months. How many people do, you, do we know now that could have survived something like that without losing their mind? There are no photographs of Pat Frazier's great-great-grandmother, Lottie Dennison. But Capricia Wallace and her mother, Cassandra, have a surprising number of pictures of their ancestor, Kazula, whose owner called him Kajo Lewis. What does it feel like to be able to know where you come from, to know the person who came here first? It's empowering, very. Like growing up, my mom made sure she told me all the stories that her dad told her about Kajo. Cassandra, that was important to you. Very to, important. To, to pass that knowledge along. My dad set us down and he would make us repeat Kazulu, Kertilda, uh, Kajo Lewis. It has historical uh, importance as well as a story that needs to be told. The story of the Clotilda began in 1860, when Timothy Mayer, a wealthy businessman, hired Captain William Foster to illegally smuggle a shipload of captive Africans from the Kingdom of Dahomey in West Africa to Mobile, Alabama. Slavery was still legal in the southern United States, but importing new slaves into America had been outlawed in 1808. In his journal, Captain Foster described purchasing the captives using $9,000 in gold and merchandise. As this replica shows, the enslaved Africans were locked naked in the cargo hold of the Clotilda for two sickening months. When they arrived in Mobile, they were handed over to Timothy Mayer and several others. Captain Foster claimed he then burned and sank the Clotilda, but exactly where remained a mystery. Until 2018, when a local reporter... Ben Rains found the Clotilda in about 20 feet of water not far from Mobile. He'd been searching for seven months, following clues in Captain Foster's journal. The exact location hasn't been made public for fear someone might vandalize the ship. But last February, the Alabama Historical Commission gave maritime archaeologist James Delgado, who helped verify the wreck, permission to take us there. So the Clotilda came up this way? Straight up here practically in a straight line after they dropped off the people. And then on one side of the bank, set her on fire and sank her. So he was trying to destroy evidence of a crime? Yes. The bow of the Clotilda is not far from the surface, but the water's so muddy, the only way to see it is with this sonar device. Sonar's on, zero pressure, good to drop. So we're almost over now. Yeah, okay. we're coming right up on it. So that's the, the bow right there. That's it right there? Right yes. The yep. Oh, you can see it like that? Yeah. Wow, you can see it totally clearly. I mean, that's the ship. Yes. Yeah. That's Clotilde. On sonar, the bow is clearly defined, as are both sides of the hull. The ship is 86 feet long, but the back of it, the stern, is buried deep in mud. Those two horizontal lines are likely the walls of the cargo hold, where the enslaved Africans had been packed tightly together on the voyage from West Africa. So the hold where people were held, how big was that? In terms of where people could actually fit five feet by about 20 feet. Wait a minute, it was only five feet high? So people could barely stand up in this hole. Yes. Diving on the wreck is difficult. Underwater, there's zero visibility. You can't even see the ship. Delgado's team has only felt it with their hands. They call it archaeology by Braille. This is the only image our camera could pick up, a plank of wood covered with what looks like barnacles. 
Delgado and state archaeologist Stacy Hathorne showed us some of the artifacts they retrieved. This plank of wood is likely from the hull of the ship, and this iron bolt with wood attached shows evidence of fire damage. You don't see the grain of the wood. It basically makes a briquette. So this is evidence clearly of that they tried to burn the ship? Yes. Yes. The enslaved Africans were taken off the ship before it sank, but Delgado says there could still be DNA from some of them in the wreck. You will find human hair. You can find nail clippings. Somebody may have lost it, too. You could still find human hair in the wreck of the Clotilda? Yes. The state of Alabama has set aside a million dollars for further excavation to determine if the Clotilda can ever be raised from the riverbed. The ship may be too damaged or the effort too expensive. I think what's extremely important for folks to understand is that that there was a concerted effort to hide these things that were done. Mary Elliott oversees the collection of slavery artifacts at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. It's important that we found the remnants of this ship because it, for African Americans, it's their piece of the true cross, their touchstone to say, we've been telling you for years, and here's the proof. Remarkably, many of the descendants still live just a few miles from where the Clotilda was discovered. This is Africatown, founded around 1868, three years after emancipation by 30 of the Africans brought on the Clotilda. Joycelyn Davis has organized festivals to honor Africatown's founders, one of whom was her great-great-great-grandfather, Charlie Lewis. Last February, she took us to the street he lived on <laughs> called Lewis Quarters. So pretty much everyone on this street <laughs> can, can trace their lineage back yes, to Charlie Lewis. Yes, everyone here is related. Wow. Yeah. Lewis and some of the others got jobs at a nearby sawmill owned by Timothy Mayer, the same man responsible for enslaving them. I mean, they worked for like a dollar a day until they saved up their money to buy land. Kudjo Lewis also worked at the Mayer's sawmill. This rare film shows him in 1928. By then, he was in his 80s and one of the Clotilda's last living survivors. He helped found this church in Africatown, the same church his descendants still attend today. After emancipation, it seems so unlikely that a group of freed slaves could pool their resources and build a community. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. There's this thing we say about making a way out of no way. Making a way out of no way. When these folks were forced over here from the continent of Africa, they didn't come with empty heads. Mm. They came with empty hands. So they found a way to make a way, and they relied on each other, and they were resilient. Africatown is the only surviving community in America founded by Africans, and over the decades, it prospered. There was a business district, the first black school in Mobile, and by the 1960s, 12,000 people lived here. They built a city within a city, and that's what we can be proud of. We had a gas station, yep. we had a grocery store, post office, yeah. all that was a booming area right. of black-owned business. But today, those black-owned businesses are gone. An interstate highway was built through the middle of Africatown in the early 1990s, and the small clusters of remaining homes are surrounded by factories and chemical plants. Fewer than 2,000 people still live here. The Smithsonian's Mary Elliott took us to Africatown Cemetery, 
where some of the Clotilda's survivors and generations of their descendants are buried. No matter where you go in Africatown, you can hear factories and industry and the highway. There is this constant buzz here. It's a buzz you hear all the time, day and night. And it's a constant reminder of the breakup of this community. The descendants we spoke with hope the discovery of the Clotilda will lead to the revitalization of Africatown. And they'd like the descendants of Timothy Mayer, the man who enslaved their ancestors, to get involved. According to tax records, Mayer's descendants still own an estimated 14% of the land in historic Africatown. Their name is on nearby street signs and property markers. Court filings indicate their real estate and timber businesses are worth an estimated $36 million. But so far, the descendants we spoke with say no one from the Mayer family has been willing to meet. I don't think it's something that people want to remember. Because they have to acknowledge that they benefit from it today. That they benefited. That's it. That they benefited. And they don't want to take it. People don't want to look back. Mm-hmm. And they acknowledge it. Acknowledge that that's how mm-hmm. part of their wealth was derived, and that part. on the backs of those people. What would you want to say to them? I mean, if if they were willing to sit down and have you know have this a coffee with. Ironic. We would first need to acknowledge what was done in the past, yeah. and then there's an accountability piece yes. that your family for for this many years, five years, owned my ancestors, and then the third piece would be how do we partner together with in Africa town. I don't want to receive anything personally. Right. However, there's a need for a lot of development in that community. We reached out to four members of the mayor family, all either declined or didn't respond to our request for an interview. One man who did want to meet the descendants is Mike Foster. He's a 73-year-old Air Force veteran from Montana. While researching his genealogy last year, Mike Foster discovered he's the distant cousin of William Foster, the captain of the Clotilda. Had you ever heard of the last slave ship? No. No. What did you think when you heard it? Uh, I wasn't happy about it. It was, uh, it was very distressing. Do you feel uh, some guilt? No, I didn't feel any guilt. I didn't do it. But I could apologize for it. And last February, before the pandemic, that's exactly what he did. Yeah, over 160 years have passed, and we find it. 160 years. Yes. This is a powerful moment. This is a powerful moment. So I'm here to say I'm sorry. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. In an effort to attract tourism to Africa Town, the state of Alabama plans to build a welcome center here. The descendants we spoke with hope more can be done to restore and rebuild this historic black community and honor the African men and women who founded it. So I always think, my God, such strong people, so capable, Mm -hmm. achieved so much and started with so little. We have to do something to make sure that the legacy of those people in that cargo hole never, ever is forgotten because they are the reason that we're even here. Some of you may know James Corden as the frisky, funny British host of The Late Late Show, one of Viacom CBS's own. But if you are not one to stay up past 12.30 a.m., then maybe you're one of the hundreds of millions who have caught Corden on his YouTube channel. 
taking a talk show stuck in an after-hours time slot and making it available online around the globe. With charm and wit, Corden gets A-list stars to open up in a way that seems to surprise them as much as us. Amazing for someone who was virtually unknown in the U.S. when he moved here six years ago. But James Corden will tell you he had already put in his 10,000 hours, a deft physical actor who by his late 20s had achieved success and fame in Britain. Corden says he's on a lifelong quest for happiness, and he'll do almost anything to move the needle on his audience's happy scale. James, we are ready if you are ready. I'm ready. Yes. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. Eight feet away and right on cue... Can I be honest, Bill? I wrote an email last night saying, what should I wear? Should I just wear a suit? And they said, no. They said, Bill won't be wearing a suit. <laughs> oh, no. But I read that you're kind of a fashion person. I said, well, I guess I should up my game a little bit. Well, you, and, and I have to say, it's not gone unnoticed. You've matched the socks to the suit. That's it's important to have a well-dressed ankle. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah. <laughs> We spoke with James Corden at the fabled Sunset Tower Hotel in West Hollywood, a stone's throw from another iconic institution, CBS Television City, where for five and a half years, he's clocked in at 9 a.m. four days a week to take on the serious business of delivering a show each night, now taping under strict COVID-19 protocols. How has it changed your show? How has it changed what you do? Well, I think it's, it's changed everything in a sense you know we like to think of it as being about scale about size of getting out of the studio and running out into the road and shooting big sketches big numbers big ambition and obviously those things are very difficult at this moment with no audience and fewer guests on the couch cordon's more than made do first doing the show from his garage and now back in the studio easily riffing with his band and on this occasion, this reporter to witness the process, warts and all. It's really good that America's great again, though, isn't it? <laughs> that won't be in the show. Uh, <laughs> try it, Bill. Give me a break. Horton <laughs> thinks everything they do now is looser, and he puts a premium on calling it as it is. Maybe I'm immune. It's okay to go out for a ride with others trapped inside. I will say that as time's gone on, as we've been living under this administration, I don't even consider it to be politics. I consider it to be right and wrong. I consider it to be good versus evil. We are more than comfortable talking about anything. We also feel like we're an entertainment show. Our primary concern is to just try and make you laugh somehow. That's really what we love to do. And I'll really stop at nothing to try. It may not always work, but I'll give it my best shot, you know. Corden burst onto the late-night landscape, not to rip up the notion of the talk show, but to make one that would travel on the Internet. Add to that, much of the show's success is rooted in Corden's nature. So hang on, is this, am I moving into your house? Is that what's... <laughs> An affable, droll Brit whose appeal draws megastars and who each night hosts more of a cocktail party than a late show. 
Brown paper packages tied up with strings. And then there's what Corden modestly calls their digital outreach. Highly produced segments designed more to break the internet than travel through it. So uh, tell me about some of the sketches that have caught on. Spill your guts. Spill your guts or fill your guts, yeah. There is a common thread in all of these, and all of these are about showing the human being inside this very, very famous person. That's actually what it is. Nowhere is it truer than in the front seat of James Corden's Range Rover. A few years ago, you would have been forgiven for not knowing what carpool karaoke is. Today, you have no excuse. Carpool karaoke, the, 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 the core of it really isn't the songs. The core of it is the intimacy of the interview that these are some of the most famous people on planet Earth. You know, the, the, the biggest singers in the world, and they're in an environment which is completely humanising. This, this traffic has been terrible. I really appreciate it. I got you, man. James Corden turned a guileless invitation to drive around Los Angeles into something he hangs the show on. Each carpool is a viral sure bet. Enough is enough, is enough. Sometimes taking an entire day to produce and often outpacing his TV audience by 100 million views. Notable because at first nobody wanted to do it. It was hard to get them to get in your car. Hard? Are you joking? Of course it was. Imagine getting that call. You're like Adele's publicist, like... Yeah, so it's a host whose show is completely unproven. They've never hosted a show before. Uh, we'd love you to just get in a car and drive around and sing your songs, and we're not really sure about the insurance on this one. You know, it was crazy. I mean, we managed to get Mariah Carey, and I will always be indebted to her for saying yes. So I genuinely, honestly don't know if we're having this conversation if she hadn't said yes. I think it's that important to our show. Do you have a favourite? Well, there's there's so many. I mean, the the doing it with Paul McCartney will, will probably take some beating for me personally. It was just a just a, a, a day I'll never ever forget. What sticks out in your mind about that day? All of it. Penny Lane, there is a fireman with an hourglass, and in his pocket is a portrait of the Queen. Sometimes I think if that was an auction prize. What would it go for, you know? And I'm at work. What? Penny Lane! And like so many other segments, Corden's Carpool with the Beatle has brought a smile and a song to more than 56 million people who have watched it online. Someone's going to come up and go, that's never him. They'll never believe it. It's really the, the bedrock of, of what our show is built on. But I think when the show started, we were in, I don't know, eight or ten countries... And I think now we're in over 100 countries. It's utterly bemusing to me how far that reaches. This is like a cultural phenomenon. I just, yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 you're making me feel incredibly British. 
by uh, not being able to even look you in the eye uh, during a compliment or any kind of recognition of success. <laughs> Corden grew up an hour outside of London, the only son of working-class parents. His mother was a social worker and his father a musician and Bible salesman. Corden was scarcely interested in academics, drama class being the exception. I got a B in drama and a C in home economics, which I think is clear to you that those are the only... If you look at me now, those are really the two <laughs> things I took a primary interest in, which was performing and eating. You talk about, um, often, about the, the struggle you have had with eating and with your weight. Yeah. And you, you were bullied because of, of your weight in school? I don't look back at my time at school that, that I was bullied because of my size. In, in truth, that's probably where all of that faux confidence comes from. It was all a defence mechanism of like, well, I'll be the biggest target in the room. And bullies don't like that. Bullies' confidence is like kryptonite to bullies. James Corden's confidence was equal to his ambition. At 17, he found his calling and his voice, albeit with just one line, in a musical in London's West End. He was a working actor for much of his 20s, but big lead roles were elusive. So he decided to write the part for himself, co-creating and starring in one of the UK's most popular TV comedies, Gavin and Stacey. It won him awards and made him famous in the UK. At 34, Corden married Julia Carey. They're now raising three children in Los Angeles because Hollywood came calling after his performance on Broadway in the slapstick One Man, Two Governors. It won him a Tony Award for Best Actor and grabbed the attention of American critics and television executives alike. It was glorious doing that show and playing that role and and I can really chart sort of everything that's happened in my professional life as everything before that play and everything that happened after that play. Oh. And there's a lot to consider. The latest is a glitzy musical adapted from Broadway about four washed-up theater actors attempting a comeback through celebrity activism. You will become celebrity activists. The Prom premieres on Netflix December 11th. With big numbers and spectacular sets, the film shows off Corden's talents for what he calls his other career, a deep love of acting and performing. So many of your fans have never seen you do the song and dance routine. You know, when I took the job as the host of The Late Late Show, lots of people told me, oh, that's it, you'll never act again. So really, I was so keen to prove them wrong that there was a world in which I could do this. And I guess this is a test for that. The movie features Corden alongside Andrew Reynolds and Oscar winners Nicole Kidman and the marvelous Meryl Streep. We spoke with her remotely. So what did you think when you found out James Corden was going to be a co-star in, in your film? Well, I was, I was thrilled. I think he's one of the most preternaturally talented actors, Writers, improvisers, musicians. He's, he's a quadruple, quintuple threat. So it's, it's fun to work with him. It's fun to be with him. How is it that he gets such a wide array of people, in, including people like you, to go along with some of the crazy stuff he does on his show? 
Well, he, you know, you're in safe hands. I think uh, I don't. I, he's not going to push you over a cliff. It's like great, great directors. Uh, you feel safe with them, and I think James, you you trust that he's he's got this in hand. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Let's crack on. Here we go. At 42, it's a good bet James Corden will continue to surprise, delight, and evolve before our eyes. With a sage understanding of his fickle industry, Corden delights in his success but doesn't take any of it for granted. I think my job is to care about the show to a, to a ridiculous amount, the, the beats of it, the tone of it, until the moment I start hosting it, and then my job is to just only be on a quest for fun, a lifelong, up-at-dawn, pride-swallowing siege for fun. I love that. That's all it's about, isn't it? That's what everything's about. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. James, we are ready if you are ready. I'm ready. Okay. Yes. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. Can I be honest, Bill? I wrote an email. I was like saying, what should I wear? Should I just wear a suit? And they said, no. They said, Bill won't be wearing a suit. <laughs> oh, no. But I read that you're kind of a fashion person. I said, well, I guess I should up my game a little bit. Well, so. you, and, and I have to say, it's not gone unnoticed. You've matched the <laughs> socks to the suit. That's... Beyond. Important to have a well-dressed ankle. That's, That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended the evening where it began. Never ever again will I wear such a bland sock. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty bland. I mean, look at you. Look at yours. Those black socks. Compete with this. Look. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. That's how people say hello now. <laughs> hey, exactly. how you doing? In the time of drink? COVID. <laughs> if you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 
I've been a reporter for more than three decades, and along the way, I've been talking to myself in notebooks I've carried in my back pocket. They've captured thoughts about life, parenthood, death, friendship, and more. I'm John Dickerson, and I'd like you to join me in figuring out what these 30 years of notebooks mean in my new podcast, Naval Gazing. Each episode, we dig through the piles of notebooks that I've been collecting, and from their entries, try to sort out what makes a life. This collection of audio essays is available wherever you get your podcasts.